morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty, and all are welcome here. I'd like to especially welcome you if you're visiting with us this morning. We're so glad you're here, and I invite you to visit our visitor's table out in the foyer here where you can learn more about the church and to join us in Housen Hall after the service for coffee and conversation. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in all people. So it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to the left and to the right and greet the holy among us this morning. It's our tradition in Unitarian Universalist congregations to begin our service by lighting our chalice. So if you would please turn to our words for lighting the chalice, which are printed in your order of service, and say them together with me. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. In your order of service, you have an insert, and our call to worship this morning is a responsive reading from the Wizard of Oz. And this is a speech by the Cowardly Lion. Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? What makes the flag on the mast to wave? What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? What makes the dawn come up like thunder? What makes the hottentot so hot? What puts the ape in apricot? What do they got that I ain't got? You can say that again. Unitarian Universalism is a faith without creed. There's no set of beliefs that we all have to sign on to. So sometimes people ask us, well, then what holds you together? Well, in this church, we have a set of shared values, transcendence, community, compassion, courage, and transformation. And out of those values arose our mission statement. It's our common purpose. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. This is the time in our service where we breathe together. We breathe together, breathing deeply. We go to that deeper place, that place of vulnerability And yet, oddly enough, that place that is the source of courage within us, that spark of the divine within each person. We breathe together, and together we enter a sacred moment of silence. We've come to the fourth in a series of worship services about our church's religious values, and as you may have guessed from our opening reading, the value we'll be talking about today is courage, which we've defined as to live lives of honesty, vulnerability, and beauty. 
I have to say that I'm feeling a bit of serendipity to be talking about this topic on this, the fourth Sunday in February. First, because last year on the fourth Sunday in February, this church had the courage to ordain me into the Unitarian Universalist ministry. But also, and more so, because the very first sermon I ever, ever did in any Unitarian Universalist church, this one way back when I was in lay leadership, was also on the topic of courage. Don't worry, I'm not going to subject you to that sermon today. But I do want to continue this idea of serendipity for just a little bit longer. Because then in March of last year, I talked about vulnerability. And I told a story about how... Growing up as the oldest child in a single-parent family, when I get into really stressful situations, I can slip into this set of unconscious behavior patterns called over-functioning. I can get just a little bit perfectionistic and think it's my job to take care of everybody else. And I described how many years ago now when my grandfather, who I was very close to, died, I did exactly that. I went over there and I started trying to take care of everyone else and everything, at least partially as a way to try to avoid my own grief, at least for a little while. Now, we can do these things often very automatically. We sort of just slip into whatever our unconscious behavioral pattern is because when we're under high levels of anxiety or heavy emotions, the older, more ancient part of our brain, the amygdala, or what a friend of mine likes to call our lizard brain, can kind of slip in and take over without our being consciously aware of it. So then in early April, when I got the call one morning that my stepfather, Ty, had died, did I listen to my own preaching from the sermon that I had just done? Nope. My lizard brain kicked in and I went straight into overfunctioning. I called up Meg and then I called up my mom and I got busy to get over there and start taking care of my mother. And I was in an overfunctioning storm. I was packing and texting my family members with instructions and finding a place to stay all at the same time when all of a sudden my dog, Virgil, who had sensed that I was upset about something. It's amazing how our pets can do that, isn't it? Virgil comes in from outside with a little present to help me cheer up. An apparently dead squirrel, which Virgil drops in this container by the doorway where we keep their leashes and looks up at me like, hey, I hope you feel better now. Only the squirrel had only been playing dead, so I hear this... And the squirrel jumps out, dashes across the floor, gets behind the refrigerator with Virgil chasing right behind. So now I've got a half-dead bleeding squirrel behind the refrigerator and a crazed dog. Does this kick me out of my amygdala brain over-functioning? Oh, no. I put my hands on my hips and start lecturing my dog. I'm like... Virgil, I know you were trying to help, but you're really not helping, and I need you to go get in your kennel so I can do something about the bleeding squirrel. Of course, Virgil ignored me. The squirrel was a lot more interested in what I was saying. So at that moment, luckily, I got a text from one of my brothers talking about his travel plans, and that sort of allowed me to re-engage my frontal cortex where our logical, rational thinking occurs. And I figured out I was going to have to pick the dog up, put him in the kennel. I got the broom, chased the half-dead squirrel out, and got on my way to visit with my mom. The thing is, once we all got there, 
we all did the same thing. We all started slipping into whatever our unconscious behavioral patterns were for times of grief and stress. My mom had asked me to tell a funny antidote in the memorial service about something Ty had done and to lead the prayer for the memorial service, and I got busy making sure I was going to make both of those as perfect as possible. And there's this odd thing that happens when someone we love dies. It creates this mountain of paperwork and planning and phone calls and arrangement and just work that we have to get done. And we all threw ourselves into helping my mom get all of that kind of work done. But the thing is, we weren't talking about the loss or how we felt about it. We came to the day of the memorial service, and the people at the funeral home took us into this small private room and closed the door. Ty's casket was there, and it was open so that we could have a private viewing. And I was having really mixed feelings about this because part of me thought, I really don't want to remember my loved one in this way. And another part of me was thinking, wow, this really does make this real. It doesn't allow me to sanitize death. So anyway, I was having this moment of real struggle, and my mom walked up to me and said, I can't believe he's really gone. It just doesn't seem real. And she was crying, and I grabbed her, and I held her, and I said, I can't believe it either, and we just stood there together for a moment. That was the first moment of real courage during that time. Now, don't get me wrong. All of those other things we were doing weren't bad. They were necessary. They had to get done. And sometimes, just like when we're physically injured, we need to anesthetize the pain for a while. We need to do some numbing. It's just we have to be careful that we don't get addicted to whatever pattern it is that we're using to numb. We have to not let it become a way of living. So my mom showed real courage by breaking through all of that other stuff that we'd been doing and speaking an honest and vulnerable truth. It can seem unreal when we lose someone we love that much. It can seem surreal. And when she did that, she created this small, beautiful moment, even in the middle of our grieving process. Dr. Brene Brown, who I've talked about before, the shame and vulnerability researcher, has a term for this that I really love. She calls it ordinary courage. This is when we live our lives daily on an authentic, vulnerable basis. We're very real. We're willing to speak our emotions even when that's really difficult to do. We avoid numbing the really, really hard stuff so that we can more fully experience the great stuff, belonging, connection, love, joy. As we think about courage, though, I think it's important that we think about what we mean and what we don't mean by that word. I don't think it's thrill-seeking or full-heartedness. It's not being fearless, I don't think. I think we need fear. It's a survival mechanism. When the lion or some other predator is charging at us, we need our anxiety to kick in a flight, fight, or or freeze response as a way of survival. It's just it becomes problematic if these sort of automatic unconscious reactions are occurring in our daily lives, in our emotional relationships with those people that we love. 
So I think courage is finding a way to overcome our fear, to channel that fear in a healthier way. It's being able to identify when we're in that lizard brain mode and try to find ways to re-engage our frontal cortex. In fact, I don't think we get courage without these emotions. The core of the word is core, C-O-U-R. It's a French word, a heart word. It means taking heart, moving with great heart. So I think what we need is to be able to just engage enough of that rational part of our brain that we can focus whatever strong emotion we're feeling in ways that are more beneficial to us and to those that we love. Now, we started with that reading from The Cowardly Lion and The Wizard of Oz because one of the themes in that movie is that all of those characters already possessed within them that which they were seeking. The Cowardly Lion already had courage. He just had to find ways to act on that courage. He had to find ways to practice courage. And so I think we can think of courage sometimes as something that we cultivate with a set of practice. We can cultivate it during less stressful times. So when things get really hard and we really need it, we already know how to access it. So your other reading was from Dr. Brown's 10 Guideposts for Wholehearted Living. Buddhist nun Pema Chodron says something I think perfectly describes wholehearted living. She says, we have to be brave enough to soften what is rigid in our hearts, to find the soft spot and to stay with it. We have to have that kind of courage and take that kind of responsibility. So it occurs to me that those 10 guideposts that you all read with Julie could also be thought of as describing ways to practice ordinary courage. Now, we don't have time to go into all of them today, but I gave them to you as the insert in your order of service. You can take them out now and look at them. And I also gave you the name of her book where she goes into more detail about them. I do want to touch on just a few of them, though, that I think can be challenging for at least some of us as Unitarian Universalists. I'm going to ask a set of questions. They're rhetorical. You don't have to answer them out loud or raise your hand unless you particularly want to because you think it would take courage to do that. Which of these would you say you're already practicing? How about those you might want to work on some more? If you're not already How could you find a way each day to bring into your awareness that which you are really grateful about in life? How about the things that bring you great joy? What are the ways that you feed your own sense of creativity? If you already do something creative for a living, what are some creative acts you could do just for fun? In her book, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear, well-known author Elizabeth Gilbert says something I love because I think it describes how engaging in creative acts is actually an essential part of what it means to be human. She says, The universe buries strange jewels deep within all of us and then stands back to see if we can find them. She asks, Do you have the courage to bring forth the treasures that are hidden? within you? Finally, how can you prioritize spaces in your life, actually create them on your calendar, just like your other appointments, for play and rest, calm and stillness, 
What about laughter, song, and dance? That dance part drives me crazy because I have absolutely no rhythm. Now, I think we have to know that if we truly live these guideposts, if we act with with ordinary courage, we're going to fail sometimes. We're going to get knocked down. Other people are going to push back because it's practically countercultural now to display the level of authenticity and vulnerability that these practices require. Fortunately, Dr. Brown comes to our rescue again. She actually studied folks who had practiced living with courage, failed, got knocked down, and found a way to pick themselves back up and continue living wholeheartedly. And she discovered they have in common a process that she calls Rising Strong, which is also the title of her newest book. So as humans, we are hardwired for storytelling. When something difficult happens to us, that amygdala, that older part of our brain, starts making up a story so that we can act upon it, even if we're not aware that it's happening. But the problem becomes we often don't have enough information or correct information, so the story gets filled up with inaccuracies, often things that are bad that have happened to us in our past that we just plug in over and over again and that can result in these negative emotions and these ways of acting that don't always work for our benefit. So when we fall down, making ourselves aware of that story that we're making up and being willing to challenge its accuracy is really core to this rising strong process. That's the first step. It's called the reckoning, where we walk into our story by realizing that we're feeling something negative and getting curious about what's the story I'm telling myself that's behind this negative emotion. Now, this process can work with relatively small failures or the big, important, challenging times in our lives. I'll give you an example. When I was in seminary until I was a senior, I had a perfect 4.0 grade point average. And then I took a required Christian history course, and horror of horrors, I got a B plus. (laughs) So the reckoning for me was getting curious about why I was so disappointed about getting that B plus, disappointed to the point where I was having trouble working on my other coursework. So the second step in the rumble, in the process, is called the rumble. It's where we own our story by getting honest about what it is that we're making up and getting more specific about what it is that we're feeling so that we can challenge what isn't true and needs to change. So in my, oh, how could I make a B in seminary story, B plus, <laughs> the rumble for me was struggling with the story that I was telling myself about how I had to be perfect all of the time, and to realize that the emotions that went with that perfectionism were rooted in shame. The final step, then, of the Rising Strong process is called the the revolution. It's where we get to write a new ending to the story for ourselves that will allow us to live more fully and with more courage, and we do that based on what we learned in the rumble. So for me, it was realizing that what was really important was the ministerial formation process, not my GPA. It was realizing that by letting go of perfectionism, I could actually become a better minister who could be more present to those who I would eventually serve. It's a story that I still have to relearn from time to time.
I'd like to close by talking just a little bit about religious and spiritual courage. I think that the things we do here in church, worship, fellowship, faith development, board and committee works, all the other activities in ministry, these are spaces we can create where we can practice these guideposts. We can practice ordinary courage with each other. I think church is a place where we can hold each other's vulnerabilities with a tenderness and a kindness and with love, treating them as sacred. And I think by doing so, we can encourage courage in one another. Our social justice and interfaith programs then become how we channel that ordinary courage out into a world that needs us to take extraordinarily brave stances. When I think about the damage that climate change has already done and how it's going to get worse before it has any chance of getting better, when I think of the challenges we face trying to dismantle racism and all those other oppression, it leads me to believe that we're going to have to cultivate a level of resilience that practicing ordinary courage together in a religious setting can provide. Finally, spiritual courage. For this, I want to go back to that guidepost about cultivating intuition and trusting faith, letting go of certainty. I think this has been vital to our Unitarian Universalist history and tradition. We have always been the questioning and the seeking faith. We've rejected creed and dogma because they stifle spiritual growth, we've recognized that the very concept of faith implies uncertainty. And yet, it can take real courage to live in that place of uncertainty. It can be so easy to slip into another unwritten, unspoken set of dogma that are just different than whatever dogma we rejected in the past. Here's an example. Science, reason, and rationality as the only path at the expense of feeling and experience has been challenging for us as Unitarian Universalists sometimes. But I actually think we are the faith where science and religion can hold each other in a warm embrace that expands the reach and depth of each and pulls us into a profound sense of awe and wonder and mystery. That's a place where many of us experience the divine. Others might call that a sense of that which is ultimate, an interconnectedness that is far beyond each of us as individuals. So as we think about spiritual courage, may we continue to practice the spiritual courage that allows us to embrace that uncertainty so that we can dwell more and more often in that place of mystery and awe and wonder. Please join me in our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Courage transforms the emotional structure of our being. This change often brings a deep sense of loss. During the process of rising, we sometimes find ourselves homesick for a place that no longer exists. We want to go back to that moment before we walked into the arena, but there's nowhere to go back to. 
What makes this more difficult is that we now have a new level of awareness about what it means to be brave. We can't fake it anymore. We know when we're not showing up and when we're hiding out, when we're living our values and when we are not. Our new awareness, though, can also be invigorating. As we go out into our world today, I wish for you that invigorating awareness. May the congregation say amen, amen. and blessed be. Go in peace.